Chapter 2 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 2 Vittoria Colonna. Who ever walked through the Colonna Gallery at Rome without pausing before the portrait of Vittoria Colonna, the great Italian poetess. The face is one of surpassing beauty, singularly pure in outline and perfect in regularity of feature. The eyes are large, soft, contemplative, the forehead grand, the lips full and finely curved, the hair of that molten gold which haunted Titian's dreams and became tresses of sunshine upon his canvas. Rarely has an angelic spirit, affluent in intellectual gifts, been enshrined in a mould of such absolute loveliness. For Vittoria Colonna's clayey part was but a faint reflex of the gloriously beautiful shape within. In olden days, as in modern, Poetesses seldom looked poetical. True hearts and noble minds were often disguised in earthly cerements of coarse and unshapely clay. That something in this world amiss, which Tennyson tells us, shall be unriddled by and by, creates a want of harmony between the inner and outer development. Well, may we contemplate with refreshing delight such an exception to this perplexing rule of incongruity as the Italian poetess presents. Vittoria Colonna was the daughter of Fabrizio Colonna, brother of that prothonotary Colonna, who was decapitated after tortures of inconceivable cruelty at the instigation of the hereditary enemies of his family, the Orsini, and by the order of Pope Sixtus IV. Vittoria's mother was Agnes of Montadafere, daughter of Frederick, Duke of Urbino. At the time of Vittoria's birth, 1490, the princely house of Colonna had reached its meridian splendor. Vittoria was born at Marino, the castle and town picturesquely nestle among the hills that surround the lovely lake of Albano, and of the many fiefs held by the Colonna in the neighborhood of Rome, this was considered the most beautiful. When the Colonna took service under Frederick II of Naples, that king, to render more secure his hold over his new and powerful friends, betrothed the infant Vittoria, then five years of age, to Ferdinand de Avalos, a child of the same age, son of Afonso, Marquis of Pescara. Constanza de Avalos, Duchess of Francavilla, the elder sister of the boy fiancé, was one of the most cultivated, pure, and highly refined women of her day. Shortly after the betrothal of the children, the Marquis of Pescara lost his life through the treachery of a black slave. 
the young ferdinand was his heir and on the death of constanza's husband king ferdinand made her chatelaine of the picturesque little island of ischia the infant victoria was then transferred to her charge to receive her education in the company of her future bridegroom a year later king ferdinand the second died deeply lamented by every class of his people especially mourned at ischia when the children were eleven years old the harmonious routine of their days of blended study and pastime was broken by the presence of discrowned royalty the french had sacked capua and were advancing upon naples and frederick the last of the aragonese kings with his queen and children sought refuge on the rock-bound isle of ischia until he threw himself upon the generosity of the french king love seems to have been equally strong in the hearts of both of the affianced children when the youthful couple had entered their nineteenth year costanza deemed it time for their marriage to be celebrated vittoria made a farewell visit to her parents at marino and returned to ischia escorted by a large company of roman nobles who came to be present at her nuptials in beauty of person the young pescara seems to have been a fitting mate for vittoria his biographer gianni thus describes him his beard was auburn his nose aquiline his eyes large and fiery when excited but mild and gentle at other times he had many knightly accomplishments but his bearing was haughty his speech brief and grave and he kept aloof from all familiar intercourse to victoria however he was all gentleness and tenderness after their nuptials two years of tranquil and uninterrupted joy such as mortals seldom taste were granted to the young pair later in life victoria often and often recurs to her blessed childhood and to those two years of unbroken ecstatic felicity in her happy island home but pescara was a soldier not to fight as soon as he reached manhood was to be dishonored at the close of those two idyllic years when he was twenty-one he accompanied victoria's father and joined the army in lombardy severely as the young husband and wife suffered from this separation even the gentle clinging victoria never sought to be spared the pang of parting she never forgot that she was the daughter and the wife of a soldier when it was suggested that her husband was the sole surviving sion of a noble house and ought to be absolved from risking his life upon the battlefield she repelled the counsel as indignantly as the young soldier himself courageously she sent him forth with the olden motto on his shield with this or on this vittoria remained at ischia with constanza the dwellers on this little island were always surrounded by a brilliant circle of wits and poets and literary men whose society both ladies thoroughly enjoyed 
there was no fear of scandal for even the foulest tongue would not have dared to sully victoria's name by the suggestion that she was consoled for the absence of her husband by the admiration of other men in his very first battle piscara was made prisoner victoria's father met the same fate the united spanish and papal arms were defeated by the french before ravenna ninth of april fifteen twelve Piscara was picked up on the field where he had been left for dead and carried captive to Milan. During his imprisonment, he composed a Dialogo di Amor, which he inscribed and sent to his wife. The Bishop of Como asserts that this dialogue was full of grave and witty thoughts. Pangs of sorrow gave birth to Vittoria's muse. The first poetic production was a letter in verse of one hundred and twelve lines addressed to her husband in his prison one naturally smiles at the pun which breaks in upon her lamentations but when we remember the elegantly turned puns of shakespeare's heroines involuntarily uttered in the most agonizing situations we must pardon the italian poetess for saying si vittoria volevi io terra aspresso ma tu laciedome lacivi le if victory was thy desire i was by thy side but in leaving me thou didst leave also her pascaro's captivity was robbed of much of its discomfort through the influence of a general in the service of france who had married the prisoner's aunt as soon as his wounds were healed he was permitted to ransom himself for six thousand ducats vittoria had the great joy of welcoming her husband once more to their island home the maternal principle was strongly developed in her affectionate nature and the holy presence of infancy soon became indispensable to her perfect felicity but she remained childless her husband had a young cousin, Alfonso de Avalos, Marques del Vasto, whose disposition was so violent and ungovernable that guardians, tutors, servants alike shrank from him in terror. Every attempt to train or educate him had proved futile, yet he was endowed with fine mental capacities and with personal beauty of the highest order this boy victoria fearlessly adopted declaring that he only needed prudent and loving management to become a superior man the boy was quickly inspired with a sort of chivalric devotion for her his passionate nature rightly moulded and directed proved to be full of strength and nobility she magnetized to the surface every dormant good impulse and cultivated his heart as well as his mind he owed to her his love of literature and his scholarly attainments the turbulent youth became a refined whole-souled man a soldier of renown vittoria had ample cause to rejoice over the fruition of her glorious work and alfonso's ever-enduring love brightened her life in its darkest hours she used to say with exultation that the reproach of being childless should be removed from her name for she have given mental birth 
to a child in developing the mind and moral nature of a being whom no other hand had been able to master after a few months of domestic happiness pescara joined his army in lombardy vittoria remained at ischia surrounded as before by poets and men of letters some of the most celebrated writers in europe visited her little island and immortalized its beauties tasso was among their number he eloquently celebrates the brilliant ischia reunions of choice spirits vittoria had herself become an enthusiastic votary of the muse and her lyre was never more silent pescara's duties in camp only permitted him at long intervals to pay brief visits to ischia in october fifteen twenty two he remained with vittoria three days and then returned to the army battle quickly succeeded battle and she never saw him more at the age of thirty-five he was made general-in-chief to charles v but in spite of his undeniable valor and soldierly achievements the proof that he was false to his king are only too strong pope clement the seventh tempted him to turn traitor to charles and use his armies under his command to crush the spanish power in italy the throne of naples was promised to him as the price of his treason piscara undoubtedly entertained the overtures but it chanced that a messenger bearing letters which would have revealed the whole conspiracy was robbed and murdered by an innkeeper at bogamo and buried under a staircase as time passed and no tidings were received the conspirators concluded that the letters had been forcibly taken from their courier and the blot would be made known to charles Piscara determined to save his own reputation by a clever stratagem. He wrote to Charles, and coupled with assurances of the greatest loyalty, the information that certain conspirators had made him propositions to which he had listened for the sake of detecting and frustrating their machinations. This complicity is too strongly proved by a letter from Victoria in which she vehemently urges her husband not to be lured from the path of honor by any temptations and tells him that she has no wish to be the wife of a king but only of a loyal and upright man it is thought by some historians that this letter and not the disappearance of the messenger saved pescara from becoming a traitor to his monarch Charles credited Pescara's tale and made him generalissimo of the imperial forces in Italy. In the same year he was taken ill at Milan and sent for Vittoria. She set out with all speed, but had only reached Viterbo when she received the tidings of his death. He died on the 25th of November, 1525, was buried at Milan, but shortly afterwards carried to naples and interred with great pomp vittoria's love had been boundless and her sorrow had no limit she gave herself up to the most frantic bewailing not comforted to live because pescara was gone and what manner of man 
was it who inspired love so large and grief so great some paragon of virtue doubtless alas for the truth the reader starts in amazement and shrinks in horror at learning what all history testifies this idol raised for heart worship by one of the purest loveliest most gifted of god's creatures was a man base and infamous cruel as a savage merciless as a heathen two virtues he had and apparently only two was he was a brave soldier and he loved vittoria he was reckless of human suffering says the historian and eminent even among his fellow captains for the ferocity and often wantonness of the ravages and widespread misery he wrought the cruelty he committed was worse than turks would have been guilty of an anecdote illustrates his pitiless sternness as a disciplinarian he had ordered the ears of a soldier to be cut off for entering a house for the purpose of plunder the man implored that his ears might be spared and he cried out in anguish that death would be preferable to losing them pescara with savage jocosness at once bade his soldiers since the culprit preferred death to hang him to a neighbouring tree in vain the wretch shrieked for mercy he was seized and hanged while pescara enjoyed the joke of having taken him at his word Gisicardini states that he has often heard the chancellor moroni declare that there did not exist a worse or more faithless man in all italy than pescara and this is the man whom victoria's love surrounds with such a radiant halo that his character seems resplendent with the most glorious virtues this is the man whom she makes the theme of a long series of poems in memoriam the man whom she calls her bel sole for whom dear sake she is tormented to commit suicide whom she longs for death to rejoin and then chides herself for wishing to die because haply her virtue may not suffice to enable her to rejoin him in the mansions of the blessed can love's power to idealize be more forcefully and wondrously illustrated she had entered her thirty-sixth year when she became a widow and the writers of that day pronounce her beauty in its meridian glory the medals struck at milan just before her husband's death bear witness to her supreme loveliness she was even then styled the most celebrated woman in italy but her renown as a poetess became much greater at a later period the first stunning prostration of her grief caused vittoria to attempt to shut herself out wholly and forever from that world which she had hitherto found so beautiful and so full of enjoyment she hastened to rome and immured herself in the convent of san silvestro resolved to take the veil but the bishop of carpentras a man of letters and a poet vittoria's personal friend saw the fatal rashness of the act into which grief had hurried her and induced pope clement to send a letter to the abbess and nuns of san silvestro 
charging them to shelter and console the Marchesa di Picascara, but absolutely forbidding them to let her take the veil. She had resided at the convent nearly a year when a new quarrel arose between the Colonna family and the Pope. Vittoria's brother, Ascanio, and her sole protector now insisted upon her leaving the convent and hastening to Marino. A little later, the Colonna faction sacked the Vatican and the houses of their mortal enemies, the Orsini. For this act of violence, Cardinal Colonna was deprived of his hat, and the estates of all the family were confiscated. Vittoria once more took up her abode in the little island which had borne the footprints of her husband's feet, from infancy to manhood, which had been the scene of such rich joys, and was now the grave of so many hopes. Her first passionate burst of anguish had softened into a quiet mournfulness, and from that time her true poetical career may be said to have begun. Writing poetry became the chief occupation of her life. One hundred and thirty-four of her sonnets were lamentations over her loss, or written in honor of her husband's memory. The distinguished men and women of that day hailed with delight the appearance of each new poetical effusion, and wrote in its praise to the sorrowing songstress. Her works passed into three editions during her lifetime which in that day was equivalent to thirty in this. It is a remarkable fact that in this beautiful and gifted woman, who had all her life been the center of a crowd of worshippers, so thoroughly impressed everyone knew her with the sense of her perfect purity that she seemed to have been the rare exception to the rule which prevents the chastest from escaping calumny. Numerous suitors she, of course, had, but when she refused the hand which had been once bestowed with her heart, and never could be given again, ardent lovers became devoted and lifelong friends. Trollope says, We find her uninfluenced by the bitter hereditary hatreds of her family, striving to act as peacemaker between the hostile factions, and weeping over the mischief occasioned by their struggles. We find her the constant correspondent and valued friend of almost every good and great man of her day. He adds, the learned and elegant Bembo writes of her, that he considered her poetical judgment as sound and authoritative as that of the great masters of art of song. Guidicicone, the poetical bishop of Fossombrone, and one of Paul III's ablest diplomats, declares that the ancient glory of Tuscany had altogether passed into Latinum in her person, and sends her sonnets of his own, with earnest entreaties that she will point out the faults. Veronica Gambara, herself a poetess of merit perhaps not inferior to that of Victoria, professed herself her most ardent admirer, and engaged Rinaldo Corso to write the commentary on her poems, which he executed as we have seen. Bernardo Tasso made her the subject of several of his poems. Giovivi 
dedicated to her his life of Piscaro, and Cardinal Pompeo Colonna, his book on the praises of women. And Contarini paid her the far more remarkable compliment of dedicating to her his work on free will. In 1530, the pestilence raged in Naples and even reached Ischia. Vittoria was compelled to fly to Rome. The Colonna family had made their peace with Pope Clement and their fiefs had been restored to them. The poetess resided with her brother, Ascanio, and his beautiful and accomplished wife, Donna Giovanna da Organa. Vittoria's adopted son and pupil, the Marchese de Vasto, was also at Rome, and his presence was always a joy to her. Yet she grew restless and ill at ease away from her island home, and hastened back as soon as safety permitted. At the close of six years she was again induced by her brother and adopted son to visit Rome. Her fame had increased with every year, and it is recorded that her stay in Rome was one continued ovation. Her religious impulses were strong and pure, and she was prompted to study of theology that she might know something of the God whom she worshipped. A year after this visit to the Holy City, she first invinced Protestant tendencies. René of France had married Hercules II, whom sympathies were avowedly with the Protestant party. These sympathies had rendered the court of Ferrara the resort, and in some instances the refuge, of many of the professors of the new ideas which were beginning to agitate Italy. Vittoria visited Ferrara for the purpose of exchanging ideas upon this vexed question with some of the leading minds assembled there. Duke Hercules and his court paid her the highest honors and invited the most distinguished poets and men of letters in Venice and Lombardy to to meet her. At Ferrara, she conceived the idea of making a journey to the Holy Land, though she was then in failing health. Her adopted son went to Ferrara to dissuade her, and after much entreaty, induced her to return to Rome instead. Her presence in the papal capital was once more the signal for public rejoicings. That she was an advocate of religious reform her poetry gives ample testimony, though her Italian biographers make great efforts to maintain her orthodoxy. Trump declares that Vittoria Colonna has survived in men's minds as a poetess, but she is far more interesting to the historical student who would obtain a full understanding of that wonderful 16th century as a Protestant. Her highly gifted and richly cultivated intelligence, her great social position, and above all her close intimacy with the eminent men who strove to set on foot an Italian Reformation which should not be incompatible with the papacy, made the illustration of her religious opinions a matter of no slight historical interest. It was shortly after her return to Rome from Ferrara in the year 1537 that a tender and durable friendship sprang up between the renowned poetess 
and the great sculptor and painter Michelangelo. He was in his 63rd year, and she in her 47th. It was through his association with Vittoria Colonna that the rugged, stern, self-intelligent old man became a devout Christian. In the poems which he addresses to her, he attributes that change wholly to her influence. The letters of Vittoria to Michelangelo are preserved as the most treasured possessions of his descendants. The last was written after the sculptor became architect of St. Peter, and she tells him playfully that her duties to the youthful inmates of the convent of St. Catherine at Viterbo and his duties as architect at St. Peter's must prevent a frequent correspondence. In this same year, 1544, she returned from Viterbo to Rome and took up her residence in the convent of the Benedictines of St. Anne. Her health, long delicate, now began to fail rapidly. When she became seriously worse, she was removed from the convent to the house, which chanced to be near of the only one of her kindred left then in Rome, Gelano Cesarini, the husband of Giulia Colonna. Her brother and son were both at a distance, but Michelangelo, her ever true and devotedly attached friend, sat beside her couch as her pure and lovely spirit gained its freedom. It is said that he often mourned in remembering that he had not dared to press his lips for the only time upon the noble but clay-cold forehead. She died in February 1554, in the 57th year of her age. Vittoria well knew that her works were a more lasting monument than could be carved out of stone and she ordered that her funeral should closely resemble that given to the nuns in the convent where she had resided, and that like theirs, her place of sepulchre remains unmarked. End of chapter 2